Welcome to Highly Volatile, an unfiltered podcast for real-life professional traders, investors, and top executives. To be the best, you need your thoughts and perspectives challenged by the best. This podcast series features some of the most thought-provoking and disruptive minds in both business and investing. My name is Kevin Van Trump, and I'm joined each podcast by my good friend, legendary trader and angel investor, Andy Daniels. Together, we attempt to challenge the conventional and gain a better understanding of the disruptor. We search high and low for wealth hacks and exciting new investment opportunities. But at the same time, try to uncover hidden pitfalls or unforeseen changes coming our direction that might rock our worlds. We hope you're challenged by our unfiltered thoughts and conversations and enjoy our highly volatile podcast. And please remember, there's risk in trading futures and options. You should carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for you in light of your circumstances and financial resources, foundations for you to buy or sell any commodity, any stock or any type of other investment. So make sure you use the podcast as an educational tool to broaden your horizons and maybe add a bit more perspective. Hey, this is Kevin Van Trump with another edition of Highly Volatile. I got my good friend Andy Daniels on the phone with me today, and uh, Andy's brought along a special guest, one of our friends, Emily French. And I'm going to kick it over to Andy and Emily, and let uh, Andy introduce uh, him, and we'll uh, have a good time here. I think yeah, everyone's going to be super stoked uh, uh, to hear Emily's perspective. Like I said, tons and tons of experience. So, Andy, take it away, and look forward to it. Well, thanks, Kevin, and uh, I, I'm, I share your enthusiasm and excitement to have Emily with us today. Um, many of the uh, longer-term listeners, not listeners, but uh, followers of uh, um, Kevin's uh, um, exploits over the years might remember uh, back in the uh, early days during the Van Trump proms in the, um, in the old theater in Kansas City, uh, Emily uh, graced us with her presence and uh, spoke there and uh, gave us her perspective of the markets. Product probably goes back to 2010 or 11. Emily and I uh, met back in 2009. Um, yeah, she was with a, a, a big bank, um, kind of <laughs> establishing the rules for OTC today, and uh, had the honor of working with Emily for the last uh, 11 years and until recently, she's uh, opted to go into a, a different direction, which I'm super excited for her on. And uh, Emily, if you could, maybe you give our listeners a little bit of background, um, those that aren't familiar with you, uh, and what you're doing and uh, where you come from. <clears throat> uh, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll give kind of a, a quick background. Um, I'm originally uh, from North Idaho. I uh, grew up on a farm. Uh, at that time, uh, we farmed about uh, 3,000 acres, soft white wheat, lentils, um, and Kentucky bluegrass, a little bit of barley. Uh, so yeah, I just um, had an idyllic childhood. Uh, my best friend was a horse, so that was wonderful because you know they couldn't talk back to. Um, and and you know, it was just a big version of a dog. Um, went to Washington State, and um, you know, I, I wanted to be a chemical engineer major and ended up taking, ironically enough, uh, calculus three different times. The first time, a D minus. <laughs> the second time, you know, a C minus. And the third time, a C plus. Uh, the, probably the irony being um, calculus is derivatives-based, which is 
largely what I do today. So I would like to tell um, students that I had talked to or, or kind of this younger generation that's coming up is, is that if I can do it, literally everybody or anybody can do it and, and not to lose faith. So after bombing calculus, I went into agribusiness and um, I had an advisor that was like, listen, I think it would be really good if you did some interviews with different companies. And there was this company I'd never heard of, had no idea who they were, and went through that process. And before you knew it, I had a job offer from Cargill, um, which you know, sometimes not knowing things isn't so bad uh, when you go into, into, into this uh, situation. So started my career uh, off with Cargill, and that was incredible. Um, with them and then made my way to DC and worked for the Grains Council and World Perspectives and I was in Hong Kong at a conference there and um, this would have been in 2003, 2004-ish. And uh, if you could spell corn or soybeans, yeah, that made you super smart, I guess, in terms of I could be an investment banker. Um, so I was hired um, by National Australia Bank and uh, was in the U.S. and in Australia and then came back to the U.S. with Macquarie, um, all of that doing uh, sales and, and OTC. And a lot of um, when I was with Macquarie really got more into the asset side um, and not just the, the consumer uh, users, but uh, other investment banks and kind of the story and thematic investing um, in agriculture. And that was great. And then, Andy, I think we were down in Memphis at a uh, conference, and, and that's where we first met. And, and uh, I took some money from you <laughs> on uh, remembering some people's names. And uh, a scotch or two later, I think we uh, had plans to, 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 to launch Conciliagra. And, and uh, so that was a blast um, and did brokerage. And then, you know, things happen and things change, and, and I really think that um, for me and what I love to do, you know, um, after 25 years, um, I think I've, I've figured out what I want to be as an adult and what uh, my passions really are, and, and that's much more on you know, building and helping build uh, businesses, and a lot of that's outside the U.S., um, from a risk management port, um, from my views on the markets, um, from my Rolodex, uh, etc. So that's really the focus on GAP, uh, the global egg protein company that uh, I started um, in, in kind of mid-late December. Wow. Well, that's uh, – I, I got to get to that point where I figure out what I want to be when I grow up. I'm, uh, I'm impressed you've done that at such a tender age. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now I'm dating myself, oh. um, mm, mm. but uh, no, I, I've uh, I, I've traveled around. I've I've, I've kind of, I guess I consider myself a semi groupie of uh, Emily's. I've been over to um, to Istanbul and listened to her speak uh, at at a conference over there. What is the the uh, uh, oil and fats conference? You've yep. been the keynote okay. speaker over there a few times, uh, several times, and uh, I know you you spent a lot of time in Asia um, in in the last several years, and that kind of is seems to be where your focus is, which is really helpful for the conversation we're going to have today, particularly when we look at the demand side of the market. So, you know, with uh, that said, uh, thanks for your background. Um, and I, let's just kind of get into the markets. Uh, Emily, you know, we got uh, some incredible things going on. We're seeing price levels we haven't seen for multiple years. Um, we have people scratching their heads because it wasn't but six months ago 
uh, going to be sub $8 and cord and sub $3. So here we are um, in a bright new world with uh, uh, a lot of uh, things that people are still trying to digest and get their head around. And uh, mm -hmm. we had a big report yesterday, obviously, um, that really kind of validated where we are. And so I guess I'd like you to kind of lead us off and pick a commodity, and we'll start there and kind of work our way down through the uh, pipeline and have, get some interaction and conversation going. Uh, no, that sounds great. Um, I, would, I would offer this. Um, just my, my general thesis is, you know, all's fair in love and war, and the market is the market, and, and this is where we're at. I mean, I personally think it, it's shit, quite frankly, because it's been focused on the supply side, the supply side, the supply side. Um, again, that's fine, but I do think we've got some challenges on the demand side, whether it's COVID, whether it's animal disease, um, whether it's just China in the world import grid at the size of it is, and is it a one-year thing, is it a three-year thing, um, et cetera. So to me, when I look at the demand landscape, my, my challenges are what's going on at the rest of the world. China, yes. Shiny, shiny sparkly toy. Absolutely. I have no problem with that. But when you start looking at China, um, again, we can start even with corn. When you look at world corn imports and the growth of this year versus last year, China is 89% of that. For wheat, China is 90% of that. For sorghum, China is 109% of that. For soybeans, China is the growth. And when you look at soybeans, like the rest of the world, demand is contracting. And it's been the rest of the world when you start looking at the charts. And again, anybody listening to this podcast, if, if they want a copy of my latest PDF that I put out last night, that's my picture book or my side book, right? Um, being a good land-grant university kid, I try to keep everything very simple, so I like my, my pictures. Um, but if you look back over the last five to eight years, it's actually been the rest of the world. That was this dietary shift and change um, in, in the demand structure. And that's kind of missing. And I think second to that is ethanol has a problem, whether it's in the U.S., um, whether it's in China, you know, I, I think everyone is focused on China, that sparkly toy of they're going to import. You know, I think they'll do 20 million tons of corn. I've been there since September, um, so that's really not interesting to me. There's some people that are at 40 million tons, et cetera. But I think you have to, when you look at China, you have to step back a little bit and recognize food security is very important. And the fact that its own industrial sector is a massive off-ramp, a massive demand off-ramp, should food security become problematic for the Chinese um, government. So there's just some things out there um, that, that cause me um, to pause. And while I appreciate the, the anger, the tenaciousness, I mean, I, I've been doing this for 25 years. I have never seen or experience this kind of money flow. And again, I, I went through the, the, the rallies of 2008 and 2009 and, and 14, et cetera. It was never this ferocious, this constant bid, 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 bid. It was 
you know, $2 ago, I was laughing. I was like, you know, Jesus, is, is soybeans or are soybeans the new Tesla? <laughs> because it was just this, this constant frothiness um, of, of buying breaks and buying breaks. Even though the fund position was getting smaller or has been getting smaller from peak mid-November, to, to the most recent data point. So I think I would start off um, with, with kind of that as my first launch <laughs> in this discussion. Okay, great. Um, you know, the, the uh, yeah, I mean, you look at fun length and corn is an all-time high. Uh, Kevin pointed out in his wire today that, you know, we're 400, well, Friday, now we're probably at 440, who knows. Um, mm-hmm. And and you know and that comes at a time when 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 uh, we're we're what five dollars we're, we're th- you know in 2012 we we have more fun length than we did when we were at 850, and, and here we are. So you know there, there's a lot of people that are looking for the inflation story. I feel um, and, and inflation sure. you know talk and everyone has to have a story in order to get behind it. And and so you know ag has been kind of the uh, the, the left out stepchild for the last five years, and so. Now there's a story, and people love telling it, and you, you're starting to get some institutional players that are supporting that story. And, uh, you know, now there's more money than ever before with, with all the, you know, the uh, amount of stimulus that's been uh, injected mm-hmm. into the world in the U.S. So I get what you're saying, but I think part of it, at least in my way of thinking, is justified because of this extraordinary amount of stimulus out there and, you know, there's no more bond market. So if you don't have a bond market, which used to be 40% of all investment capital, um, what are you going to do? And you can only trade stocks till the PEs get to be points of insanity. Oh, that's right, we're there now. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we're looking for alternative stories, I guess. Kevin, would you agree with that, or what are your thoughts? No, no, I, I totally agree with everything Emily said, but, hell, I'm also the dumbass that uh, took off my long positions at 1180. Uh, you know that I'm I'm with Emily. I mean, we're you know I I'm sold out of uh, old crop beans, Emily, and I'd sold out. My goal was to really get sold out in the fourth quarter. I just thought the story was, you know, from a from a long ways out. I thought, hey, we could have a story in the uh, fourth quarter with the election. China could come in. We could have some big buying. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Maybe you get a little billion, you know, South American weather. And uh, I never uh, I never dreamed we would be you know, 250 higher from that mark, Andy, like you and I talked. But as I've talked, I, and, and Andy and I were talking last night, and I was talking with some other hedge fund guys this week. I mean, why not? Just like Emily said, I mean, why not? Tesla can do what it's done. Bitcoin can do what it's done. Uh, I guess why not uh, the soybean market? So I'm with you, Andy and Emily. I, I don't see traditional S&D traders, uh, supply and demand traders, in this market buying this thing up. I think these are guys that, uh, and a lot of, my point, guys, that aren't even looking at the balance sheet all that much. So, you know, I, I think it's just looking. For, money's looking for a place to roost. Money's looking for a home, and there is an inflationary story in the air that the Fed's going to let, uh, you know, food and energy run hot, and uh, you know, hell, diversify a portfolio and throw some money over this direction. It's a sexy story, but I'd love hearing like Emily saying the demand side uh, outside of China. Hell, there, there, you know, it's interesting. So. I'm with you guys. Well, there just seems to be some some little bubbles percolating on the back of that. Um, you know, talking about soybeans specifically, let's start with the, the very basic fact there is no substitute for soybeans. 
the, the world is completely reliant on soybeans, like with corn and wheat and sorghum, you, know, you have some substitutability. But that's not the case with soybeans. But to that point, the last time soybeans were at $14, the RIAI U.S. dollar, which has been the, the currency relationship since March of 2020, has completely changed the game. Whether it's the Brazilian RIAI U.S. dollar or it's the Russian ruble versus U.S. dollar, etc. But to that point, the last time beans were at $14, the RIAI USD was 2.25 to 1 maybe. And now we're back at 14, and the RIAI US dollar is 5.3 to 5.5 to 1, so at record lows. And the last time soybeans were at $14, Brazil expanded its own soybean production by 40 million metric tons. So, you know, <laughs> is, Brazil, is Brazil the panacea? No, but if you're not looking at what the hell's going on in Brazil, you will miss, if you're a producer, so you are always long, period. If you are not looking over your shoulder and down south, you know, I, I think you, you will miss out um, on that, on that, just, I mean, that is the reality. Um, likewise, when you look at world soybean ending stocks or the world supply cushion, which is kind of how I look at everything, to, to simplify it, um, the world consumes 1 million tons every day. It's very easy, right? That is easy math. So you lose a million tons of production, you lose a supply day. And, and so for me, that really helps kind of lay the groundwork of this global market because what I think we are is very much in a global market, um, despite some of the price action at times. But your supply cushion is over 83 days. Yes, you've lost 15 days, but when you look at stocks over the last two decades, we're actually just at average levels. And again, I've got the rest of the world soybean importers that have been the growth engine for me for the last five to seven years, and that demand is contracting. Um, and I'll, I, I would Why like is to, that demand contracting, Emily? Why? Is it because well, they, I think they, some they of it's COVID. Their... Okay. No, no, no. I think it's much more the impact of tourism, clearly, uh, the, the impact of restaurants, the impact of, um, you know, I think two big questions are out there. One, what the hell does Brazil and Europe and the U.S. do with their finished meat exports to China? Because that demand will at some point in time fall off a cliff. Because China, and, and I don't fault them, but China is always going to do what is in the best interest of China. Let's be very clear about that. I mean, every country does that. Um, so to that point, I think that has been an 18-month demand driver. I think that's problematic. Um, so, so again, I would point just to, to more the COVID challenge. Um, we're definitely seeing demand destruction with meal, you know, at, at over 450 bucks a, a ton just on the board. Um, I think that is a challenge. I think um, you're seeing demand contraction because of animal disease. So Europe's in lockdown. You have African swine fever. Now you have bird flu, and they're culling. Another point that 
you know, I feel like I scream into an echo chamber sometimes, and it's just myself, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> but, but Europe is the world's largest meal importer, right? Europe is world's largest meal importer. They are forecast to increase their imports by 2.5%. Marketing year to date, it's down 7.8%. That's the problem. Yes, they're importing more beans, but that, is, that doesn't explain what's going on. And then second to that point, which if people are not paying attention to this, you better keep an eye on India. They now have bird flu in 10 states. They are culling as fast as they can. It's breaking out. It, it, it's, it could become an exceptionally difficult challenge for India. And why do we care about India when it comes to poultry um, or culling or meal is that typically when India enters the export grid, it is the cheapest source of meal into Southeast Asia. And I was on a, a call last night, and because of this, um, they're saying India could export upwards of 4 million tons of meal versus USDA's current 1.9 million ton export forecast. So that becomes interesting to me. Um, but I don't, I don't think we have an appreciation or really understanding yet as to the overall impact of, of COVID, uh, to be frank. And COVID clearly is not going away. Vaccine or no vaccine. Um, it, you know, you're talking now, everybody's like, oh, by March. Now it's July, <laughs> yeah, et cetera. Um, so I, I think that's going to be an underlying current uh, here. And clearly you see that in the traditional energies, right? Crude, heating oil, um, et cetera. I mean, they have been, I mean, if you want to talk about an asset that's underperforming versus what everybody else is doing, clearly energy looks quite cheap on a relative value basis. Good point. Good point. Um, so okay. can I, I, I have a question. Here's another question that keeps me up at night. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you guys have looked at it this way, and I apologize for my pontificating, but when it comes to soybeans, what I find interesting is U.S. export sales to China will be at least 20 million, to 20 million tons larger than last year. Right. Okay. So let's, so let's call it 20.5 million tons more exports out of the U.S. to China. China's imports are forecast to only increase 1.5 million tons to 100. Let's call it 102. So 3.5 million tons, whatever. I mean, it's a rounding error. So I've got over 20 million tons, bigger business out of the U.S. to China. I've got China increasing imports only a very minor amount. And Brazil exports are forecast to decline only 7 million tons through the 31st of August, 2021. And the rest of the world demand is, is call it flat, to a minor contraction of 33,000 metric tons. Like, how long of an export tail is going to come out of Brazil? Because hmm. the math doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my head. And, and that causes me to be probably more bearish on the supply side, you know, that supply side push. So I've got, I, pose, I always think about that question. 
And then the second question I ask is, why the hell is everything about Brazil so bearish? They improve their infrastructure. You know, they're setting record soybean exports. That's bearish. You know, beans were at $8.50, $9. Um, their own domestic balance sheet, super, super, super tight. But the market's like, that's Brazil's problem. Logistics are bearish. You know, they're getting it done. And then when you looked at the U.S., you know, as we came out of August, yes, weather was a problem, but there was a massive, I mean, the elevation margins exporters made out of the U.S. were, I mean, ain't all bad <laughs> to, to be a U.S. exporter the last four or five months because the elevation margins were incredible, but it was like this bullish euphoria that, oh, my God, the world's going to be reliant on the U.S. from Sep to January. But it's bearish when the world's reliant on Brazil. I find that really fascinating that, you know, and now it's, oh, my God, yeah, the U.S. is going to have to ration demand because ending stocks are at 140 million bushels or 3.8 million tons. And it's kind of, you know, I, I find it amusing, I guess, for lack of a, a better, like it's, it's kind of interesting um, when I start looking at just kind of the psychology um, of this market. Well, we kind of consider ourselves to be the, the, the center of the world. There, there's a certain amount of arrogance <laughs> that goes with that. And, you know, the futures <laughs> markets are here. And so, you know, uh, if, if prices go down, uh, you know, it's not our fault. But, um, yeah, I mean, your, your math is, is – uh, I haven't looked at it in that perspective, uh, but, but I, I, I definitely see where you're coming from. You know, it, it, but is it going to change where we are? Uh, you know, I mean, right now, 140 million carryout. I, I've talked to a lot of people that think it's going down from here. Um, and, you know, the, the immediacy of that and the emotion of that kind of expectation has a lot of people I know thinking, you know, we're going to $16 and, and, and uh, you know, Argentine uh, crush issues are going to uh, bolster our demand and, and blah, 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 blah. But obviously, mm -hmm. from what you're saying, you're not seeing it in, the, in that same context. Um, but, but again, that, that's more of the emotional storyline that's being uh, mm -hmm. touted out there. And, um, you know, you don't have nearly the length in, in, in beans as you do in corn, as an example, um, from an from a, uh, outside perspective. Um, I don't know. I, I'm just trying to play a little bit the devil's advocate, but I, I, I do hear the logic of your fundamental rationale. Uh, Kevin, how do you see it? No, I'm I'm on board with everything Emily's saying. Like I said, I I struggled. I, you know, we were on calls yesterday, and there were people talking. Uh, some traders, oh yeah, you know, we're gonna we'll probably be importing meal into the East Coast, uh, you know, by <laughs> August, July, August, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, here we go, just stoke the flame some more, and uh, I don't know, I, I, you know, <laughs> that's uh. Yeah, say it, Emily. I'm like, interesting. Um, in a, okay, so last time U.S. ending stocks, and all you have to do is go look at Board Crush. Board Crush is doing what it did the last, and it's collapsing. It is a vertical, fine, meal futures have gone vertically higher, soybean futures vertically higher, corn futures vertically higher. Board Crush is being annihilated. Yep. Mm -hmm. annihilated. And the last time U.S. ending stocks were this low, board crash went zero to negative. 
So being short, Board Crush actually is probably, if you want to, you know, history repeats itself and go with that investment thesis, um, that's what I would offer, is that's your play on the U.S. Yeah. balance sheet, in, in my opinion. Um, I kind of like mm. bull spread a little bit of uh, deferred meal like uh, July, August. I'm trying to play a poor man's trade here because, you know, old new is, is not for the paint to part. Um, sure. So, yes, I, I kind of I think that plays into that 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 uh, trading idea that I have um, regarding uh, meal spreads because of all the things you're saying. Well, I think the other thing to point out when we – let's talk about meal. And, you know, world export trade is forecast to be down another million tons versus last year. This is the second straight year of declines. And, and what's happening? It really emphasizes and, and highlights the global expansion of crushed plants, right, in that this mm -hmm. becomes very beneficial for Brazil and the U.S. And the loser, if, you, if there's going to be a loser, is Argentina. Not just because of its government, which already you know, causes massive issues, um, but you know, as more crushed plants um, are, are built and continue to be built or we run at higher capacity, um, you know, the, the reliance will be more on, on beans than, than meal. Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, so, I yeah, the, guess the other. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Um, go, no, you go ahead. What I was going to offer. What I was just going to offer on the meal. So meal has really. If I'm going to be super pissed off at one thing or super frustrated, it's been meal, because I think meal is just again. The price is the price. It's just, you know, ain't nothing but a number. It's just a number, and I understand that. But I, you were already exceeded by a long shot. You've exceeded meal futures or meal prices versus the previous two Argentine droughts. Interesting. Period. Yeah. Period. So to me, that looks super susceptible. Um, India, to me, will play spoiler, bearish spoiler, in the world meal um, export grid. Secondly, Argentina, and again, this is when I get frustrated, um, Argentina's crush rates have been super slow since July. This is not something new. It wasn't new in September when meal futures took off and it was because, oh, Argentina crushed. I was like, they've been doing what they've been doing for the past three or four months. The strike was just the cherry icing everything on the cake for this meal move, the, the strike in December. But what I find super baffling, and again, I don't think we're paying enough attention to the demand side, is that despite Argentina since July, running at very low crush rates and a strike in December, the export book for U.S. meal really has not changed dramatically. And rather, the only reason it's up 5% is that you have a few more sales to unknown and Europe. That's it. 
that does not give me a compelling bullish meal story. Second to that, Brazil meal exports have completely outperformed, which feeds into this idea that I do think the 1920 soybean crop was underestimated for Brazil, which probably puts a little um, edge to this idea that there's maybe some more upside to the current crop um, that, that's, you know, that's, that's just being harvested. Um, and, and guess, I mean, Brazil, you probably could not have any more perfect rain than, than what you've received versus how it started. You know, my, I, as, I mean, you know plenty of Brazilians, and, and I've got some good Brazilian friends, but they always laugh that, you know, well, God is Brazilian. Um, you know, we have all the resources <laughs> and all the beautiful people and all the beautiful beaches. And, and uh, if that's certainly the case, then I think maybe even Mother Nature is Brazilian and, and uh, they're all sombering um, and, and enjoying that party because it's been, you know, it, it's, it's been quite something to, to watch. Oh, it's been euphoric and, and expansion is only going to continue down there with these prices and the real where it is and and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Arvana in every sense of the word oh. Economic as a producer. What was that, Kevin? Oh, for sure. Well, yeah, no, you and I have been arguing the same thing as of late. You know, Emily, we'll hear a lot of traders that, I mean, they've been super bulled up on that there's going to be massive production cuts in South America. And, you know, Andy and I are of the contention. We're like, shit, we, we think Brazil's production could move higher. I, I hate, you know, we, we seem like. We're martyrs over here to say that, but it's it's just you know we really do <laughs> flying like, the flag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think we're everything we're hearing from our connections and all of my friends, like you're saying, Andy, you guys got from me. We're like shit. We think it could move higher. I think there may have been more acres planted to begin with. You know, as prices took off and things happened, and then there's just maybe more acres. It seems like they're always a little conservative on their estimates and shit. It's I mean, it's. It's, I think it's, it's at least 135 million tons. When you include um, all the land that sometimes isn't counted because of uh-huh. environmental concerns, if you will, <laughs> for a, a PC-type description. Um, yeah, I think yeah. I, you're easily at 135 million tons. And then you know, go on Twitter uh, or go on Instagram or just talk to everybody and the amount of pasture land and there'll be people that'll say, well, you know, that's not going to yield or it's going to take forever. And I'm like, they'll have that land ready for next year. I mean, bring, it will be a tsunami of soybean production coming out of Brazil. So if we're not only this year, but certainly next year. Yield being average. <laughs> you know, uh, and the other thing that, oh, sorry. Oh, no, I said if it, if it, if it, Let's say it's 135 million this year. What could it be next year? Oh, I mean, the world will again. Especially, COVID is not going away. Um, yes, when China grows, you know, China economic growth is very, very important for Southeast Asia, for North Asia, you know, Asia, Central Asia, Pakistan, India. You know, really, even Africa. I mean, it, it just the tailwinds on China economic growth are, are massive, and so I, I have to appreciate that. Um, but I think again, it gets back to this demand um, argument, if you will. Is 
uh, just how much growth, if any, will we see over the last 12 months should Brazil just deliver a monster, which again, the last time beans were at $14, (laughs) Brazil uh, bean production increased by 40 million tons. Likewise, remember, Brazil only crushes 45.5 million tons. It's been very, very flat over the past, you know, four years. Well, that's your capacity, right? Yes. Yeah, you don't hear of new crush – I mean, crush plants are not being built in Brazil, right? No. Right. So that just adds to this – you know, and Brazil is a rainforest, ironically enough. It does rain, um, but it's a rainforest, and in that, the Brazilian farmer or Brazil in general just has never been a big storage tank. I mean, that is not their role. They want that stuff moved out of the country. Well, they need the currency as well. We're the residual sure. supplier of everything. <laughs> right, right. Well, here's an interesting one for you. China if you look at China, actually, um, with the increase of nearly 2 million tons to its production yesterday and yesterday's WASD, um, what I find interesting about China when I looked at it was that China will actually store um, 34% of the world's soybeans. China is now the world's largest soybean storage tank. <laughs> they don't export soybeans. And I think you know, when I look at the bullish side of the equation, because believe it or not, I do, (laughs) Um, I have to respect that, that the beans that go into China do not come out of China. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we started this marketing year on the 1st of September, China's supply cushion, right, the days of use it had on hand to start this year, was 90 days. That was a, you know, a new record. So three months of supply is what China had within its country. And based on yesterday's number, that'll be 88, 89 days on August 31st of 2021. So, you know, China has a lot of soybeans um, sitting within its borders, uh, if you will. Well, okay. Um, let's move on a little bit. So if you were uh, Sorry, yeah. advising right now on soybeans, because we want to move on to corn and wheat. If you're advise, mm-hmm. advising a, a farmer on soybeans right now in the United States, what would mm-hmm. your advice be both for old crop and new crop? I would be um, completely sold out of old crop. Um, spend some of your uh, COVID relief and, and all the stimulus that was, I mean, spend some of that and, and um, you know, buy some calls, if you will. Um, I think you could do that and you just replace it with paper, um, but I'd be done with it. Uh, I would definitely, if I'm looking at new crop, that's a pretty sexy inverse. Um, and I always like to say, you know, inverses go to South America to die. Um, but to that point, it should support somewhat um, the, uh, the back end of the curve, right, as that inverse adjusts, especially if Brazil does have 135 or 134, or even 130. Like, I really don't care. It's going to be a record crop. Um, and again, into kind of a demand void um, because China has bought so many U.S. soybeans. So I think, you know, do you need to rush out and price new crop? No. But if you had told a farmer four months ago that Nov 21 was going to be 
closer to $12 than not, you know, I, they, someone would have been thrilled. Um, so you just have to, to remember, you know, okay, four years ago or five years ago, I would have been, you know, or months ago, I would have been super happy with us. So I think you've got to be pulling the trigger on some of this stuff. Um, on the consumer side, <clears throat> the, the pricings that I do do in the physical market um, were covered through uh, March, um, and we're probably 25% covered April through August. Does that feel covered enough? Of course not. Um, but I like where we're at in the grand scheme of things um, because, again, I, I do think we have a, um, you know, kind of a, a, a wave of, of product and a wave of soybeans and, and a wave of corn um, coming out of South America in, in the months ahead. Well, I would, uh, I would agree with your, your old crop perspective. Um, and I, I just can't see any good reason to be long. And if you, again, want to play the game, uh, you can always replace it with some long calls. You're, 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 you're dealing with serendipitous money here in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as far as new crop goes, yes, I, I kind of agree with that. I, the only thing I would add to your argument about the back end is that you're mm -hmm. going to have an acreage battle because – Mm -hmm. True or false, um, you know, corn, beans, and wheat are going to uh, be ha have a pretty good uh, a, a pretty good battle here going into the spring, and um, so I think that that there's going to be a lot of uh, support coming in the deferreds in the new crop months uh, for that exact reason, and, and give maybe perhaps as good if not a better opportunity to get some marketing in. But you're right. Four months ago, if someone had asked you, you have twelve dollar beans, they would have said you can own my whole crop for five years. Um, mm -hmm. So. You know, people go from getting uh, lucky, and then all of a sudden they become smart, and that's a dangerous <laughs> place. Kevin and I can tell millions of stories on that subject. <laughs> mm, Kevin, what are your thoughts I? on the process going forward? <laughs> no, I, I agree. I mean, I can't tell you how many producers I've had call, and even other other people that says, you know, what should I do with old crop beans here? We just broke, you know, we just pushed through 14 bucks, and it's like, <laughs> I mean, you know what were you saying? I'm with Emily. What were you saying? When we were at nine bucks. I mean nine fifty. I mean at some point, nobody was looking at the S and Ds, and nobody was really you know talking much fundamental. They didn't have a whole lot of uh, insightful thought. And now here we are at this level, and people are wanting to look at data and scramble to to you know to I guess to to pad their thought or belief that uh, we're going to continue to move higher. So like I said, I, I look at it as you know, like my grandfather said, I think it's better to be lucky than good damn near any day of the week. And in this one, you you know, you were lucky, you were blessed, and here we are. And, you know, hey, I, I think you got to pull the trigger. I'm, I'm with what you guys are saying. But easier well, to say, you know, I guess, oh, Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, just look at monthly the monthly charts. You know, these, these massive run-ups, these hyper, I won't say inflated, but just hyper, like, crazy moves don't last long. No, I tell no, my and, and trees, uh, trees don't grow to the sky. They, they tend to stop mm. at some point. <laughs> so. no, and nothing compares high prices like high prices. Well, let's move on to corn. Uh, kick it off, uh, um, uh, Emily. What, what, what are your thoughts on corn? And I know you're more, you're, you're, you're more protein-centric and crush-centric and bean-centric, but obviously you have a super uh, – uh, opinion on, uh, on on corn and wheat as well. So, what are your thoughts on corn here? We're 
pretty high in that regard too. Although if you look at you know um, you know days use and and uh, how many you know in terms of uh, global carryout, we're we're a lot tighter in some respects than we are in soybeans. That would appear to me mm-hmm. to be absolutely true. Um, but what are your thoughts uh, after looking at the numbers yesterday and uh, what you see going forward? Uh, sure. So with corn, um, I, I've had this in my report probably for the last three or four months, is I really want to like corn. I really want to love corn. On paper, corn is the most bullish, compelling story of the grains and oil seeds. Right? Hands yep. down. Um, I played it from a corn-wheat spread. Um, to, to, I mean, that was, that was kind of how I uh, translated my view of corn. I didn't want to be outright corn, long corn by itself because there was a couple of things going on. One, the market oh, – my mom will probably hate me using this word – but the market gave zero fucks that China was buying corn in July, August, and September. It was like, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's nice. I mean, you're talking million tons. 500,000 tons. I mean, these sales were massive, and the corn market was sitting back, drinking whiskey, living its best life, and not caring. That's what I found really remarkable about the corn market. And as such, I had to respect that that was that mentality um, going into to harvest. Certainly, the Wazdi yesterday, that was a one-two punch. You had the quarterly stocks, and then you had production coming in lower or much lower than expected, um, et cetera. With where we're at with prices, so again, looking at the supply cushion, you're at 39.2 days. The world consumes 2.47 million tons, the world without China. Let me be very specific, because I removed China from any corn discussion of the world because China holds 67.5% of the world's corn stocks. Okay. On paper, because we really don't know what they have, but that, those are the numbers from USDA that I have to use for building a baseline. Um, so you've got 39.2 days. So every time, you know, if we were to lose 2.5 million tons of Brazil production, which is a very much a risk, right? Um, versus where USDAs are right now, you will lose a day of your supply cushion. And so you are back to um, a supply cushion that is as low as 2010-11. So that, to me, is, is very um, supportive to corn. My issue with this um, versus where we are with prices is that U.S. ending stocks, the U.S., which is the world's largest corn exporter. It is the most transparent market in the world. It's, you know, all these things. You know exactly what's going on with exports or sales, um, quarterly stocks, feed, ethanol every week, etc. But my issue, so you have this very transparent market, and it holds 43% of the world without China, um, which is far more comfortable than what we saw in 2010 and 11, which is when world ending stocks were as low as, as where the supply cushion is trending. So I'm pretty neutral corn here. I don't want to be short. Um, I'm long corn, uh, short wheat. I, you know, that inverse is looking kind of fat <laughs> in the back end. Like I keep looking at it and uh, I keep wanting to, to sell it. 
um, i.e. bear spread, because I do think the, the SEP deck is, is such a throwaway. Um, that's almost at $0.23 cent inverse. Um, you know, that, that, that becomes sort of interesting, but I want to get a better handle on Brazil. Um, but, but I'm kind of looking at the inverse back there. And then second to that point, if you are a consumer, i.e. short, I think if you believe that China is going to be in the import grid um, for the, the next at least two or three years, you've got to be looking at the back end of the curve um, and, and locking in Z22, Z23, um, which is just over $4 a bushel um, in terms of getting some coverage back there. Because I think that's really where the, the, the fireworks could be. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, Kevin, I know you've, uh, um, you, you're probably right now, what, you have 70% uh, of your old crop corn sold and about 90% of new crop to be sold. Um, so I think you're kind of in that same uh, camp. Uh, you're, you're less, you're, you're more, you have a, a better, ups, more upside bias, it would appear to me, based on your, uh, your marketing plans um, than, uh, than, than not. Um, what, what are your thoughts in, in the, after the report on the corn market? No, I, I, I I'm, like I said, I, I seem that uh, be thinking similar. I, I, I think there's, you know, demand. A question, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in this demand thing with Emily talking on uh, some of the globally with the livestock, the animals, uh, the virus. I'm of a belief, too, that the coronavirus isn't going to go away. I'm of this belief that you had SARS, you had MERS, you've had coronavirus, I mean, all within the last decade. And I believe you've had billions and billions and billions of dollars now poured into sniffing this shit out. And we weren't here five, ten years ago. We didn't have companies set up in place that are just doing nothing every day but looking for these types of um, problem, you know, diseases or viruses. And now I'm telling you, you've got every, you know, Snoop Dogg in the world on this thing uh, looking to find out where we're going to, you know, have the next bird flu is, the next swine flu, the next disease, the next virus pop up. So to me, when you have that many more watchdogs looking, uh, you're going to find things and you're going to, you're going to find a lot of things, I think. And uh, I could, that's interesting, you know, cause I, I, I put a decent chunk of money to work in that space just with Zoetis some of the other stocks, the animal healthcare stocks. Uh, but to hear Emily talk about, you know, what it's done maybe to demand globally, you know, I question my theory that you know, we're going to see this big push in demand higher maybe uh, because I, I don't know. You guys think about that. You know, they, they just, now we're just, we got every eye, you know, important eye and understandably so you halted the entire world with this virus basically. So now I'm just saying we, we didn't have this 10 years ago. Now we have a lot of these things coming up and I think there's more money at play, more people look in those directions and I think they're going to find things. And, and what does that do to demand? Uh, maybe, you know, maybe it just holds it steady is all I'm saying, but we don't have an explosive growth in demand perhaps. I, I don't know. That's an interesting, interesting thought. So yeah, but Dandy, like you said, I'm, I still have 30% of old Christ to price. I was chomping at the bit to sell some yesterday, and I didn't. Um, could we go to 6 bucks? Hell, I guess. Uh, Bitcoin's at 35000 so sure. Tesla's at 5-to-1 you know, split, and here we are back again at 800 and something. So, I, you know, 
I guess if money believes there's a story, and look at the volume as of late, too. I mean, the volume's been insane in, in the corn market. So there's definitely money wanting to slosh around. I, yeah, I, I'm more bullish corn than I would be uh, beans, but I'm starting to get a little itchy trigger finger up here, I think, a little bit. So I, I, well, can't, I don't have – oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say just to Kevin's point, um, you know, Tuesday's corn volume – uh, you know, that was just over 640,000 contracts. I mean, that's the second largest trade volume following a, a January data dump, if you will, with 2014 wearing the, wearing the crown. Um, so, you know, that, your entire next leg higher, to, to me, when I look at the landscape, it has to, it's going to have to come from continued money flow and those people defending the position. And then you're running out of time with Argentina. The rains have been much better through January, end of December into January, have been much better than what was forecast. So you're losing that, to me, La Nina edge. And then the next one will be Brazil and, and how that crop gets planted. And then suddenly we're you know, at the March 31st planting intentions report for the U.S., Good point. Well, you know, in, in everything right now, you, you, you have the ability to be profitable. And, well, 2020 was probably one of the best economic years we've seen since the uh, good old uh, days of ethanol introduction for, for U.S. farmers because of, you know, all the, uh, the subsidies and the, and, and the, the um, tariff money that came back their way, plus, you know, the, the windfall of higher prices as we got to harvest. Um, you really do have to have something on the books in order to, I mean, to sit here and not have anything sold doesn't really give you anything to, to trade against or to protect yourself with. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you may want to be out there buying calls to, to, to cheat, you know, to, to give yourself that comfort factor. But at these levels, you, you, there isn't a farmer in the country that isn't profitable. And uh, to have something on the board, not have something on the books uh, is, is, is dangerous. Um, and I don't really see we – I don't think there's as much new crop um, marketing that's taken place as I would have expected or certainly encouraged people to do. So I, mm-hmm. I, I would uh, be of the opinion, yeah, we can go higher. Yeah, we have the acreage battle to go through. But as you pointed out, Emily, we have, uh, you know, Argentine weather improving. Then we're going to have Brazil's second crop. And then before you know it, we're at planting intentions. And, and so, you know, it happens fast. And <clears throat> if you don't have something on the books – then you're, you're just sitting there vulnerable, and I don't think that makes a lot of sense. So I'd be inclined to, to have something and, and probably, you know, 30% or more of my new crop on the books, and I'd personally be out of bull crop altogether just because, you know, you, you, you're not here to play in the casino as a farmer. You're here to uh, make money as a producer, and uh, you make a lot of money at these levels as a producer. Well, and I think um, just to follow, you know, on that is is – the market is in an inverse. <laughs> no one should be storing anything right now, not only because of no. that, but also, like, why deal with quality degradation? Like, why deal with that? Get yeah. your crop, get it to the elevator, get it to – be done with it. Thank you so much. Namaste. Buy some calls. Life is good. Yeah, it's a new, it's a new tax year, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you couldn't pay me. You could not pay me enough money to have anything in a tank right now. 
Hey, before we get off porn, I, I really want to hear Emily's thoughts on ethanol. I mean, because I've, you know, I've been getting yeah, a lot of calls and questions, and I heard she had some comments early on, so I want to hear that, Em. What do you think? <laughs> like you couldn't pay me to, to have stuff in a, in a tank. You couldn't pay me to be in the ethanol um, industry right now. I, I think it has huge problems, and, and um, part of that or most of that is just energy cannot get out of its own way in terms of – I mean, you're just not seeing the demand recovery um, <laughs> in terms of actual use. So I think that is problematic. Um, the waivers, the, the refinery waivers, have been hugely problematic over the last four years. That has done no favors. Um, I do think the Biden-Harris administration will be more friendly to green, green technology. What that looks like um, from a renewable fuel, who knows? Maybe they'll say, you know what, we've given farmers billions and billions and billions of dollars. Uh, we'll, we'll allocate that CCC funds to, you know, propping up the, the ethanol industry. I mean, maybe. Um, but well, you the want to be in the industry. The secretary is going to be a good old Iowa boy, right? Right, yes. Like repeat two, right? Obama take two with, with um, yeah, right, right. Uh, Um So, yeah, I mean, you could see that. Uh, but, again, then you have to ask yourself, do you want to be invested in an industry that's heavily subsidized? Um, so that becomes a challenge. Um, the, the, the concern I have with ethanol is at the end of the day, regardless of that landscape, there is minimal upside growth that I see for U.S. ethanol or corn use, right, uh, U.S. ethanol. You know, I think, I think we've seen peak. Um, and so either we, you know, we contracted last year, uh, we're going to build just a little bit this year, but I think we stay pretty consistent here. You know, the, the challenge is that you've got two massive demand engines, feed and ethanol, when you look at the U.S. corn balance sheet. And those two, ma- I mean, those are massive. Like exports are nothing. Exports are visual, and so that's super fun. But when you compare the, the sheer volume of what's exported versus the sheer number that that's what's consumed for feed or ethanol, it's not nearly as, as glamorous or sexy. And both those components um, face demand uh, headwinds, in, in my opinion. And then I think the real key because it's not just ethanol, it's, it's also industrial use. When you talk about soy oil or palm oil, you know, and you've got Brazil that's backing off its blend mandates in terms of the percent. Um, again, the spread between heating oil and, and uh, WTI and Brent is just so, so wide. It, it's how do, how do you find growth in that? And that's what's being forecast right now from an FSI uh, number for the world as well as the U.S. Um, and, and biodiesel. And then you've got Malaysia that's backing off its biodiesel uh, mandates. Same with Indonesia. Um, but I think key when you talk about ethanol isn't so much the U.S. It's what does China do with its feed seed industrial? Obviously, a lot of that is ethanol. But China is forecast, FSI alone, it's forecast to consume 87 million tons of corn. 34% of China corn demand comes from FSI. They consumed 28 million tons in 2020. If 
that is the massive off-ramp. And it will change suddenly the lysine market and the starch market <laughs> and all that because China does export a lot of that into the world. So that, when I talk about ethanol and I look at ethanol more holistically and globally, China is the big one for me as well as on the industrial use on edible oils because those two are showing some fatigue cracks or challenges, I think, or risks, certainly in, in terms of lower demand. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. We get, we get a lot of, uh, well, just from some ethanol executives and some other, uh, you know, bigger commercials, just really curious about what's going to happen here in this ethanol space. So I, I, yeah, don't, I don't think I, it goes I, away. I, yeah. I was kind of under the impression only from a few of the CEOs and some of the plants that I have some money with uh, or still have some money in that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe exports would pick up and pick up the slack uh, of, of, of zero demand growth. And then we're going to roll up a lot of the uh, less efficient plants, I should say, or some of these mm-hmm. smaller plants that are less efficient. And you're going to have a bigger percentage of a few plants producing most of the ethanol and that maybe exports would pick up into China. Where, where are they building the plant? That's the huge the- one. Yeah. That's the, 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 the savior for the U.S. ethanol industry, like the perfect, what they should you know, send a thank you note to China um, is if this happened, is if China said, I'm, which China's, you know, it's a, it's a communist country, and if they want to shut down factories, they will, and there is no argument or debate. It is, nope, done. And then that would be, I think, the panacea really for ethanol exports out of the U.S. is if China shifted into an import mode of, of ethanol rather than producing it for themselves. Do, do we that would be the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Can you guys tell me, so I had heard that a lot of the ethanol plants in China were going to be built more to the north, and that was going to, they were going to use most of that corn up there at those plants, and that was going to help the dislocation of having to rail the corn south, and they'd be bigger buyers uh, importing corn, say from the U.S., uh, into into the southern ports. Does that logistically make sense to you, or is that, eh, maybe, maybe not? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that was the game plan or is the game plan. Um, uh-huh. But overall, I mean, whether it's a dislocation or whatever, um, it, you know, a supply dislocation. I mean, they'll solve for that. They continue to improve, improve their infrastructure. Um, and, and the second point is, you know, everyone's like talks about, you know, China corn prices there are like ten dollars a bushel or eleven dollar bushel or you know they're gonna it's gonna go to twenty. And I was like, that could be the, the China's government doesn't care that corn prices are at ten or eleven dollars, as long as they can thread the needle on food price inflation, or the the CPI, the you know the pork the pork indicator, as long as they can continue to thread the needle in controlling food price inflation, actually having very high prices paid to the farmer is fantastic because that is a significant economic challenge for this current administration and, and previous, or whatever they call themselves, um, <laughs> the party. Um, that's a huge challenge is to bring up the living standard of a massively heavily populated uh, rural community in helping the engine that is China's economy continue to move forward. 
That makes sense. That makes sense. So, yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying. Do you think, do you believe, I mean, let me ask you this question. Do you think China is more interested in importing uh, corn and beans from South America, or do, do they want to import more corn from the U.S. and beans from South America? Or what, what's your your feeling. I know the quality of the bean out of Brazil seems to be better for them crush-wise, correct? Or politics uh, yes. aside, so, yes. care. Yeah, yeah. So, listen, I don't, I don't think China cares, yeah. <laughs> to, to be honest. Uh-huh. They're like, I, I don't think, you know, even under phase one, I don't think they care. Because the reality is they have to buy it. And, you know, if, if, if they could buy more U.S. corn at the prices they did, you know, clearly they did that all day long, you know, and these people that, you know, what makes me, you know, uh, raise my eyebrows and shrug my shoulders sometimes is these, this idea that China is robbing, you know, it, it's been this great robbery. And yet I'm like, well, the reason USDA has sales slashed and we have weekly export sales is because, of the Russian uh, grain robbery that occurred and then the unfortunate uh, export uh, ban there of, of, of the Carter administration or the embargo. Um, so that completely changed that. So it's, it's very visual. Like you see what China's doing. You know, you can see the ships headed there. Right? It just, you know, I, I think the world is actually much more transparent than we give, than we give credit to. True. Andy, you want to talk about wheat? Yeah, let's uh, let's let's kind of have a quick session on wheat. We're running, uh, we're going a little longer, but it's certainly with, not without a lot of interest from uh, what you're telling, educating us about Emily. Uh, yeah, let's talk about wheat. And um, what do you think? <laughs> My two-second spiel on wheat is I fucking hate it. I hate wheat. I find wheat to be so frustrating. Um, it's, I don't even, again, other than maybe some of the corn or sorry, the wheat spreads in Kansas city on the back end, um, that's kind of interesting. And then the corn wheat spread, wheat is so frustrating. So I just out of sight, out of mind to that point, when you look at the wheat fundamentals, um, the world wheat supply cushion is building. It is the only supply cushion that is building. This year, it will build, and this is without China, it will build 2.7 days. Demand is flat. There is no growth. Feed wheat demand is down 2.2%, uh, unless we get corn and wheat at parity in futures. It will remain down. Like wheat, wheat has one task. Outside of the Russia you know, $80 million question, wheat does have one task, and that is to buy demand. Uh, the return of Australia, you know, Australia simply replaces Europe. So European wheat exports will be down nearly 12 million tons versus last year. Australian wheat uh, exports will be up nearly 11 million tons. So they kind of cross each other out. You have massive expansion in the northern hemisphere of winter wheat plantings. And in fact, we saw yesterday that U.S. winter wheat plantings will be uh, increasing. This is the first time since 2012 that we've seen an expansion of, of wheat plantings in the U.S., you know, and that we have to take into consideration because a lot of that ground will be double-cropped uh, on soybeans uh, for 21, 22. Um, so I, I don't, 
again, wheat supplies are super, super comfortable. Um, Russia can double their export tax. That is not the solution for their domestic price inflation. That is their ruble is in the trash because world energy prices suck air, uh, etc. Um, so they need to be a bit more creative rather than, I don't know, trying to take a, a playbook or a play out of Argentina's playbook. Like no one should ever try to replicate what Argentina's government has done. Like it's been a travesty since 2000. Um, so export taxes do not solve for domestic food price inflation, and that's Russia's challenge. So that's my very quick synopsis of wheat. It frustrates me. It makes me have to color my hair. And every time I trade it, I'm like, I don't know why I did that. That was stupid. <laughs> I'm with you, Emily. I, I'm not a fan of a, a weed. I mean, it's a weed. It's uh, it, it really well, it, it's it's it can be grown anywhere. I mean, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's a little bit. Well, I, I won't go there, but it, it just uh, it doesn't. It really doesn't have a story that, that that can't be fixed anywhere in the globe within one growing season. Um, so I, I don't. I agree with you. I, I think it's been interesting to watch how Kansas, the intermarket spreads have moved. Uh, Kansas City versus Chicago. I mean, we got out to what a dollar thirty uh, premium Chicago, and I was- kind of think that we're transitioning back now to going back to our traditional value uh, relationship, um, you know, obviously the whole delivery mechanism of Chicago is essentially broke, but I hear there are a couple trains of spring wheat coming into Chicago. And at the, case you know, we've heard case that in point, Andy. Long, uh, case in point. <laughs> case in point. Spring wheat's moving uh, to Toledo. <laughs> right, right. But to me it seems like you could go back to a more traditional level. We are seeing that the KC Chicago spread come in, but I think it could come in further, particularly when you get out to new crop and you look at the yep. acreage uh, uh, increases. And if corn keeps going, you're going to damn sure feed a lot more uh, hard wheat. So I, I like uh, KC Chicago in the Julys. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, totally like it. Um, I'm actually back in that spread. Um, it has built a very nice bottom versus that 50-day moving average. So if you're not in that spread and you want to get into the spread, just use the 50-day moving average as your first risk parameter uh, because it's really respected that uh, here of late. And I think that is, to me, when you can find trades like that, uh, so so you know, that's the March, March, but you're just above that 50 day moving average, which is great in terms of a risk reward profile, which when you look at a lot of the moving averages, we're so far away. Um, So I super, super like that one from just for, for everything, for every reason. And there's always a good reason to have three people on the phone because two of them may agree. But uh, in this case, I know Kevin, uh, I, I don't think he's ever seen a wheat market he didn't like. Um, oh Kevin, what are your thoughts on Wheaton here? You're yeah, brave, here Kevin. <laughs> here we go. He likes to say that shit. I, know. I can't <laughs> help it. The truth shall set me free. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I mean, if you, I'm with you guys. I mean, hell, if you want to donate money, right. I, I No, I, I, like I said, I, I've had a hard time justifying. I've, I've been super aggressive with wheat sales. I mean, I've got some 2022 price now out there. We got 25% of 2022 price, so. Uh, 
in July 22 above six bucks. So I, I, you know, I, hell, I'm, I've only got about 20% of the, uh, well, maybe 20 to 30% of this year's winter wheat crop. I mean, hell, we got to see what weather does here in some of these areas for some folks. Uh, which is, you know, I mean, you know, I, I think you got to be aggressive. Though. I think push the pedal to the metal and make sales and wheat. Uh, I like what you guys said. I mean, I like the spread. Uh, you know, I think Kansas City has a definite chance over over uh, the soft. And I maybe, maybe, maybe Andy, like you said on spring wheat, we talk. You know, every time we turn around, somebody's got a spring wheat story that China's going to step in and, and and buy a sizable amount of U.S. spring wheat. But hell, I don't. How long? How long are we gonna play that uh, rumor out? I, I don't know. I mean, so yeah, I I like what you well, guys are saying. I, I think. Yeah. Well, and to to spring wheat. I mean, Canada had a monster crop. <laughs> I mean, that's gonna put a damper on on spring wheat when you look at that. And you know, I think the best gift that China's given um, so far to the egg markets outside the import side of the equation is anybody who has proximity to Australia and imports wheat, they're like, thank you. So I've told all my flour mill uh, importers in Southeast Asia, like send a thank you note to China because of their tiff between Australia and China right now. Um, so, so that becomes a, a bit interesting because when you look at world wheat demand, um, you know, like Andy said, it can be grown anywhere. It is the most multi-diverse geographic crop in the grains and oilseeds landscape that we deal with. Um, but it's, you know, it grows at less than 1% per year on a good year. Uh, that's not a, an, an awesome demand story, especially when you compare it to the protein um, story. Makes sense. Hey, Emily, to, uh, before we end, I wanted to ask you, you got any favorite stock, trading stocks or anything like that? Or um, I do. Actually, I have, I have found I'm a much better stock or equity trader because I, I, I view it more as an investor than in the grains and oil seeds in the last three months, <laughs> to, 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 to be honest. Um, before, before I chat about that, keep an eye on soy oil, and then I'll shut up because I, I realize that I've, I've chatted quite a bit. But soy oil to me looks set up just like it was in Q1 of last year. And it got annihilated. Um, soy oil looks eerily, eerily, eerily similar to last year, Q1 2020. In fact, looking at uh, put spreads in the back end, I want to sell the inverse at some point in time, maybe get through Q1 a little bit more on the palm oil side. Uh, but at inverse, in the back end of soy oil, looks super juicy. Um, put spreads down below, it looks super juicy. And just outright, um, I, I, that's going to be – soy oil is very interesting to me. Also, it is the leading technical indicator for the soy complex. So um, watching that one probably more closely than just the outright price action of, of soybeans or any of that. Um, it, it, it's, so, it's hard to it's hard to trust a uh, a soy oil led by or soy a bean rally led by oil <laughs> historically for sure for sure no I agree um, but but like I said that one has really jumped out uh, at me um, to to start just the the feel of it and how it's acting um, to to start uh, Q1 2021. 
So on the equity side, um, you know, that's probably been more fun <laughs> um, here of late. Uh, I, I love Palantir, uh, CrowdStrike, uh, love the Oobs. Um, I'm really invested heavily in things that interest me or that I use. I mean, that is my investment thesis. Uh, what do I want to read about? Um, what am I using? So the Uber, you know, use it constantly. Uber Eats, constantly. Um, I like Virgin Galactic. Like, I don't want to go to Mars or the Moon anytime soon, but I, I think it's kind of, it's kind of cool. And, um, you know, that's interesting. Peloton, obviously, uh, that has, has been wonderful. Um, United, uh, just because I fly them all the time. Tesla, I've been in that. Apple, I've been in that. Um, I did MicroStrategy in late November. That was kind of my poor man's proxy for Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin's a bit rich for me. Um, so MicroStrategy has been a real fun one. Uh, I've been buying a little bit of, of NIO. Um, again, a poor man's proxy for Tesla. Uh, on the dividend side, um, Enbridge, Iron Mountain, Bungie. Uh, that's, you know, that, that's obviously more conservative, but, but um, there, there's some cool stuff going on there. And then I'm in some of the cannabis stocks, uh, you know, because I think the world needs to chill out <laughs> after, <laughs> after the last you know, year. Yeah, yeah. So canopy growth and, and, um, and that. So th those are my, my equity stuff. Perfect. So what have you been doing? You've been skiing? You've been playing some golf or anything? Or? Yeah, golf in the snow, it's really fun. Um, no, no, we, uh, <laughs> the snow has finally arrived at Schweitzer. Uh, that is the, the, the ski mountain um, up, uh, up in Sandpoint. Um, so I've been uh, donating some of my, my money to, to that ski resort, which has been a blast. Um, I had an ACL. I did my ACL uh, and got it replaced with the, the cadaver about two years ago and finally feels uh, real right, so... Uh, I've been hitting some of the double black diamond shoots, so that's been fun. Uh, snowshoeing. Um, there was a great family that, uh, or their trust, they bought a, about, uh, I think it's about 180 acres. It's called the Pinewood. Uh, that, that's open to cross-country skiers and uh, snowshoers. And, and uh, the fat bikes, the, those, are, those are real big in Sandpoint. Um, and then I've been doing a lot of walking, like rucksacking. So... You know, throw some, some weights or, you know, your water bottle or whatever in a backpack and, and just kind of put on your tunes. And, and so I try to walk, you know, six to nine miles uh, at least five times a week. And, and that's been more probably meditative <laughs> than, uh, than, than anything else. Um, but, yeah, life is good. Um, it's been nice to slow down. Yeah, really, like usually I fly 150,000, 200,000 miles a year, um, and I haven't been at least on an international flight. I haven't been on an international flight since, since March of, of last year. So um, that's, that's been really interesting to kind of look at your, like, what would life look like <laughs> you know, when I'm retired or you know, not traveling? Um, so that's been sort of interesting. A lot of reading. Love to read. So, yeah. Well, I, I've, I've been up there and had the pleasure of uh, seeing your, uh, your, your abode and, and your view and your vistas um, and I'll tell you what, Kevin, uh, Sandpoint could be one of the most beautiful places uh, on this earth. It's absolutely just just stunningly beautiful, and uh, I, I, uh, I, I, 
uh, Emily's in a very good spot, so I don't have any pity whatsoever for her uh, isolation <laughs> up there. Perfect. Don't tell people. <laughs> now, real estate, real estate has gone bananas. And in fact, um, one of my probably bigger investments in the last five years has been um, land and, and building warehouses. Um, that that pay, payback has just been bananas um, in, in terms of that. People have a lot of shit. <laughs> you know that that they either need to store or they have lots of toys that they don't need to take care of um or don't know how to take care of or don't want to take care of uh so so that's been pretty fun as well oh that's great that's great well um guys I, this has been one of our uh well, longest but also probably one of our best uh, um uh, highly volatile we've had in, in a long time. I'm, I'm just uh, tickled pink, Emily. You, you joined us, and uh, you were extremely uh, educational, both to Kevin and myself. I'm speaking for Kevin, but uh, I'm sure to the audience is in general. So, uh, Kevin, any other uh, final comments or Emily? No. I don't um, know. Listen. I, oh, go ahead, Kevin. No, I appreciate it, Emily. I think it's been awesome. Like Andy said, I think – you know, listeners are going to really appreciate it. I think a lot of people at, at, at all levels are, are going to learn a lot and be uh, intrigued. So, hell, I'd love to have you on again sometime, you know, maybe next quarter, and uh, we get another look at things if the market's really moved. Be great. Stay in touch. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, thank you guys so much uh, for having me. I always enjoy chatting. Um, so it's been super fun. And, yeah, we'll see. Uh, right now, listen, there there are so many worse things than – when you look at these markets and you're like, wow, you know, that's a great opportunity or that's a great opportunity. I mean, we haven't had that in a long time. I mean, it's been very range bound. And, and so there's some really, really cool things that are happening uh, in this space. Um, so super stoked to be a part of it. And at the end of the day, maybe wrong, but uh, yeah, never in doubt. So we'll see what happens. A target rich environment to be sure. Well, yes. okay guys. Thanks again. And, uh, we will talk soon. All right. See you guys. Thanks. All right, you guys. Stay well. Stay healthy. You too. Bye.